Hello, my name is Justin the Clue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And today we're talking about Wong Jing, the master of trash, the schlockmeister extraordinaire, and dare I say it, the man who is Hong Kong cinema. Yeah, I guess you could say that. I mean, there is a sort of yin and yang of Hong Kong cinema in the 1990s, isn't there? And both of them were named Wong. Mm, yes, and one of them thought the other was an enemy, and the other one probably didn't think of his opponent at all. So on the one hand, you had Wong Kar Wai, an acclaimed international arthouse sensation, someone who works very slowly, very methodically, whose films often do not meet with commercial success at home. And who I should point out, to people who don't know, did come up through the commercial Hong Kong system, co-writing such films as Haunted Cop Shop 2. And then, on the other hand, is Wong Jing. He makes movies on an assembly line. He chases trends shamelessly. His films are full of bathroom humor and mugging. How about some statistics? On IMDb, Wong Jing is credited as the director of 119 movies, a producer on 185 movies, a writer on 216, and an actor in 88. Not just like little appearance Hitchcock style here or there. There are some films that he produced that he stars in. And what a screen presence this man is. Before he decided, oh, you know, I'm going to become a director movie mogul. He wanted to be an actor. But you look at him and go, yes, this is exactly who I think he would look like. Like based on the work that he makes. In the 1990s, Wong Jing produced around a dozen movies per year under two companies, Wong Jing's Workshop and B.O.B., which stands for Best of the Best. He was and is, to this day, a consummate businessman. He's always thinking about how to sell his movies before he makes them. He has been called the Cantonese Roger Corman, although I don't think this is quite accurate because his movies have been much more successful for much longer than I think Roger Corman's ever were. Roger Corman never had a number one biggest movie of the year in North America like Wong Jing had in Hong Kong. Wong Jing's sort of like the McDonald's of cinema, but he had a career, has a career, that I think is unthinkable in Hollywood because he's worked in every genre at every level. He has directed cheap, soft porn films. He's also directed big movies with big stars. He's worked with virtually every big Hong Kong and Chinese movie star of the 80s and 90s, including Jackie Chan, Chow Yun-Fat, Tony Lung, and especially Stephen Chow, who he directed many times and was very critical to making him a big star. And even Andy Lau, most of his voluminous filmography are films that he starred in for Wong Jing. One thing that unites most of Wong Jing's movies is that they are very messy. Many of them are several different genres at once. You know, there are some comedians, some comic filmmakers where you'll say he'll do anything for a laugh. But in the case of Wong Jing, he actually will. It doesn't matter if the characters change completely, if the tone of the movie changes completely, he will go wherever the laugh is. And I think another difference between him and Roger Corman is that Roger Corman was always dedicated for getting the most out of the least. And that meant even if the film wasn't that particularly entertaining, that was fine. And the difference between that and Wang Jing is that Wang Jing wants to entertain you and he will go to lengths 
inexpensive lengths, but lengths to get that entertainment out on screen. Also, Roger Corman sort of fancies himself a gentleman. He sort of fancies himself a thinker. How dare you not think that Wong Jing is a gentleman and thinker? Well, hang on. Roger Corman is always talking about the redeeming social value of his films. He's always saying, you know, in addition to everything else, we want people to think seriously about race relations, you know, that kind of thing. But Wong Jing... He likes, well, okay, uh, one anecdote that I came across while reading up on him. I'm sure you've read this one, Justin. Anne Hui was interviewed. She's one of the great Hong Kong filmmakers, a very serious art house filmmaker. And someone asked her about Wong Jing, and she said, No, I don't like him. Do you know what he said about my film Song of the Exiled? He said, who wants to watch the autobiography of a fat woman? That sounds like something that Wang Jing would say. And then she said, for maybe 10 years, she said this in the 1990s, for maybe 10 years, he's been an object lesson in how to make successful bad movies. And it is very valid to call his movies bad. And it's also a very valid opinion to call them absolutely entertaining. <laughs> I'm interested in your history with Wang Jing because when I was getting into Hong Kong cinema as a teenager, reading all those books, uh, reading all those fan magazines, you know, I saw a fair number of Wang Jing movies because how can you not? He worked with so many famous stars. He worked with Jet Li a, a bunch of times. He worked with Jackie Chan once, worked with Chai and fat a bunch of times. Inevitably, you see some of his movies, but I definitely didn't see as many of his films as I probably should have because... I kind of looked down on him, you know? You did. See, I never had that position because I think I would see that kind of holding of the nose of a lot of film critics on, I mean, let's uh, use the usual punching bag. I don't know, Cold Fusion Video or something like that. <laughs> or Love HK Film who are like, ugh, bottom of the barrel trash. When you're learning about Hong Kong film, when you're learning about anything, really, you trust the canon to some extent. You trust the canonizers. And when they're saying, when there is universal agreement that this guy is a schlockmeister that he's there's nothing artistic about his work then you're kind of thinking oh okay i'll put him on the pay no mind list and also i, I should also say in fairness to myself i did see several of his films when i was uh, coming of age that were extremely bad how could you see something like city hunter and not say well i need to see all of this man's movies okay i i have an answer to that have you seen a movie called the spy dad i have i had a bootleg dvd of that film not good uh, i mean it's great if you want some Matrix Reloaded parodies taken directly from the trailer epic movie style. Okay, have you seen a movie called Kung Fu Mahjong? I have not, but I know that that one was made in the wake of Shaolin Soccer using a bunch of the supporting cast as well as Kung Fu Mahjong 2 and 3 were also made. I saw Kung Fu Mahjong on TV. The Omni Network in Canada would often on Saturday nights play like recent Hong Kong and Chinese movies and I guess I had nowhere to be that Saturday night because I was I was at home staying up late watching Kung Fu Mahjong and wow well at the time I didn't think it was very good but I bet if I watched it now I'd probably be more open-minded I think you'd probably find it delightful but I think you're right when you say that he is Hong Kong cinema or at least he's he's a lot of Hong Kong cinema he's uh, look I'm older now I have a cosmic brain I look at these Wong Jing movies and they are so desperate to please that how can you how can you not be pleased by them and even on a surface level because a lot of these movies are not meant for me and Will. They are meant for the people who are seeing it in the cinema that one week it played, and that's it. Because it's filled with cultural references, parodies, and even intertextual stuff that we could not even begin to understand. That's true. I think Friedberg and Seltzer, the guys who made Epic Movie and Date Movie and all those 
they are a sort of good comparison for Wang Jing in that regard. The difference, though, is that Wang Jing, when it comes to actually giving the entertainment value, there is no separation between the good and the bad. Like those Freecher and Seltzer movies, they look like they were shot in front of a green screen in your friend's uh, basement. And if you're if Wang Jing is doing a parody of an action film or a humorous action film, as he would often do, the action scenes would be as good as the best action movie coming out of Hong Kong during that time because people like Yu Ping would work on Wang Jing pictures. That's true. It's another reason why Wang Jing's career is unthinkable in an American context, because in an American context, people get slotted into certain levels. If you make a certain kind of movie, you're not going to make another kind of movie. Wang Jing just worked all over the spectrum. He worked with everybody. He he worked with Jackie Chan, for God's sakes, the biggest star to ever come out of Asia. <laughs> Jackie was in a bit of a rough patch during that period. <laughs> Can I just digress and address the movie High Risk? Okay. For the a thousandth time on this podcast let's get into it this is the wang jing episode we have to talk about it this is one of the things that makes wang jing great okay wang jing at the height of his fame jackie chan at the height of his fame they work together on the movie city hunter i guess they don't have a very good experience together because a year later wang jing makes a movie called high risk and it stars jet li jet li plays a bodyguard for an egotistical drunken action star who claims that he can do all his own stunts but actually fakes doing all his own stunts and this action star has a father who looks exactly like jackie chan's father and this action star even if you're north american and you're not quite sure of the joke is played by actor jackie chung he's got the frankie loan stunt team it's not just making fun of jackie chan as a brand it's making fun of specific things that people People in the Hong Kong film industry knew about him. There's a scene where his father is killed in the, in the film. There's a lot of gossipy stuff about how the character in the movie projects this image of being a family man of being a squeaky clean entertainer but he's also just like a depraved womanizer behind the scenes and let's get to the scene that you really want to talk about will yes i can't remember if this is in the north american cut of the film but in the original hong kong cut there's a close-up of his dick when he's peeing and it is a micro penis <laughs> it is a child's penis <laughs> it's just a tiny tiny little penis so that's an extra thing just an extra little kick that wong jing gave jackie chan so this to me says so much that's great and interesting about Wang Jing, which is that he will make an entire movie just for his personal vendetta against this person that he worked with. And we should note, if you haven't seen High Risk, that film is very entertaining, has great Korean action scenes in it too. It's a very good kung fu movie. It's And it's an it's an A-level production. It has Jet Li in it. It's an A-level cast. And the whole movie was just made out of a personal vendetta that he had just to embarrass this person that he worked with. And he can do that because he was making 12 movies a year, all of which were pre-sold and made money so he can afford you know he can just afford to make some of them personal vendetta movies like you were looking into this week he made multiple movies about Wong Kar Wai. Yes, he did. Not all of them that he directed. He made one called Those Were the Days, which was a spinoff of a TV show about Cantonese television in, I believe, the 60s. But the film version is a Wong Kar Wai analog who has never made 
in the movie's words, an entertaining film. So he is thrust back in time into the 60s and cannot return to his own time until he finally makes something that people actually like. So I want to see this movie. I was reading up on it. When he goes back into the 60s, this Wong Kar Wai character actually meets a young Wong Jing. <laughs> That's right. And sets him on the path that, to make entertaining films. Although I just want to say, lest it sound like Wong Jing and Wong Kar Wai had too much of a feud, I did discover today that Wong Jing praised Wong Kar Wai's movie The Grandmaster. He said it was a great film and that he felt jealous. He felt defeated by it. Oh, uh, let's check uh, when that came out. Oh, wait, is it when mainland China was ruling and Wang Jing had to work with that system alongside Wang Karwai? Yeah, that's probably it. So the life of Wang Jing. He was born in 1955. His father was Wang Ting Lam, a very notable writer and director of dramas in the early Hong Kong film industry. Who also, it should be pointed out, made a I believe it was a mega hit parody film of Wuxia films called Mad Mad Sword in 1969 for the Cathay Company, who was a competitor to the Shaw Brothers until there was a terrible plane crash. The head of the company died, and then the company kind of folded over that as well, and Shaw Brothers ran dominant. My God, what a story. Wang Jing was born into the film industry. He graduated college with a degree in Chinese literature, which he says was useless. He's right, uh, of any kind of <laughs> literature degree. Like many of the big names in Hong Kong cinema, he began his career at TVB, which was the big local television broadcaster. Which was an arm of the Shaw Brothers Company. And his father, he actually, like Wang Jing, acts in a bunch of stuff. He is the large, old, portly gentleman in Johnny Toe's election films. Oh, wow. He appears as, you, you know who he is. Like, Will just made a face because you, you know who he is. I did not know that was Wang Jing's father. That's amazing. Wang Jing, from working at TVB, then went over to the Shaw Brothers movie studio and started writing screenplays for them, and in the early 1980s began directing for the studio. Now, I watched this week, as did Justin, I think his second film called Winner Takes All. And it should be pointed out that Wang Jing has said that when he started directing films for the Shaw Brothers, he was the lowest paid director at the Shaw's. And you know what? I'll believe him because he probably took whatever they gave him and he said, all right, I'm going to turn it around. I'm going to make something entertaining. And Winner Takes All is definitely entertaining. And you could also just kind of shuffle all the scenes around and it wouldn't really make a difference. Okay, I'm glad you say that because I was having trouble following this movie and I just sort of appreciated it, I think, on a scene by scene basis because there's always something interesting going on in this movie. Yeah, suddenly there's a killer game that's happening where razor blades fall from the ceiling the more you lose at the game and there's also a robot that plays mahjong and there's two magicians <laughs> playing as well as well as a super thief who's retired from being a thief so now he's a gentleman thief for the sake of formality i'm going to say what the plot of the film is but because i don't want to do the work i'm going to read the paragraph that's on letterboxd which w will summarize the plot probably better than i can but will also not convey the experience of watching the movie Winner Takes All, from 1982. Patrick Say is the thief of thieves, whose family is long retired from the Robin Hood lifestyle for 10 years. Recent robberies have occurred who use the family's calling card, and the police forcefully want this mystery solved. They suspect someone from from their past, but feel this cannot be him. Then who is? Okay, so I didn't read. I didn't read this paragraph for it's littered with spelling mistakes, and I don't think that's actually the plot of the film. That feels like the back of maybe a Shaw Brothers VCD that came out with an auto translated summary. I mean, it doesn't even mention the fact that the real main characters are like two detectives that are on the case as well. Yeah, so there are two detectives, and there are thieves. There's there's a band of villains, one of whom imitates Bruce Lee. Also 
ultimately what this movie is is a series of scenes again there's a great scene where somebody is practicing spiritual kung fu by doing this he's like all all hooked up and he makes another character do kung fu with him somebody he's like psychically linked to the other guy it's not spiritual will it's science it's a robot thing that he does to control him right right so he's doing kung fu but then elsewhere in hong kong there's this other guy who's like oh my god now i'm doing kung fu too and he destroys the whole room. well i know that you got lost in all these scenes he's helping his friends charm uh the girlfriend when she meets the parents oh okay 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 right right okay i mean this is a great kind of like argument about what we just saw in a Wong Jing film. Like, if you watch a bunch of his movies, you will lose the thread of which scene was in which movie, because they are often just disconnected from what's happening. The scene we're describing, where it's the classic like, oh, I'm controlling somebody else. All right. Oh, no, I get distracted by something. And then the person in the other room does the crazy thing that I'm doing. That has nothing to do with the rest of the film. What else is in this movie? There's a really nifty underground lair. There's a kung fu fight where everybody has jetpacks in the underground lair. That was pretty cool. So this film, I think, is important because it has two of Wang Jing's major themes or obsessions throughout his filmography. The first one is gambling. He loves gambling. And not necessarily in just the money that can be won by it, which I'm sure he very much enjoyed as well, but the way that gambling is a suspenseful set piece. The way that people cheat, the moving of the cards. He said in interviews that he actually likes shooting those scenes and putting them together. And so you see this appear again and again and again. Oh, what's this? It's a supernatural movie. The supernatural element is a gambler that died and is now a ghost and helping the other players. And the second major thing is that one of the actors in this film is played by Michael Chan, a real life triad turned actor. And the triad element is something that, uh, you know, Let's say, legally speaking, we cannot confirm and or deny that it helped Wang Jing make the films that he made, but it is believed that they were involved in these productions. So two things on that point. First, uh, what is a matter of public record is that at one time in the 1990s, Wang Jing was uh, beaten by the triads and had most of his teeth knocked out by Okay, them. so I've heard that story as well. I looked for reference to it and I could not find it. It seems to have no, been... I, I just read it today in the book Hong Kong Babylon, where it is extensively described. I mean... I heard that he got curb stomped and his teeth were all knocked out that way. So in Hong Kong Babylon, the book, it's in the short chapter about him and people are talking about it. Everyone seems to agree that it was a triad thing. Nobody knows why it happened, but Wang Jing's a man who likes to talk. He's a man who likes to talk shit, and there is some speculation that he probably said something about somebody that he shouldn't have said a thing about, so that's why they targeted his mouth. And then the author of the book interviewing Wang Jing asked him about it, and he sort of brushed it off, and he said, eh, if people really didn't like me, they would have hurt me a lot worse than that. You know, he could have died, I guess. Now, the other thing I'll say about that is Wang Jing was hardly alone in the Hong Kong film industry and in having- Everyone was involved with the triads. And not everybody wanted to be involved with the triads, but pretty much pretty much every Hong Kong movie you've seen in the 90s had some degree of triad involvement, even if they were just paying protection money. So the famous story goes that Stephen 
Stephen Chow tried to get into Canada at some point and he was denied due to his triad links. It wasn't because of Wang Jing, but it was because of, I think, the producer that he and Wang Jing both worked for a lot. There was a producer. I mean, the, the Hong Kong film industry, many of the companies, many of the producers were triads. And I don't think that's the case in China anymore. I think, oh, no, it's all super clean. They have no problems, no corruption. Uh, I think I think it's perhaps a different sort of corruption. <laughs> um, I, Justin McLuhan, going on the record saying that I don't believe so. Somebody write in and tell me to what extent is organized crime involved in the modern Chinese film industry. No, please don't do that. We don't want to get in on any lists. <laughs> I think you may be speaking of Charles Hung, who was a uh, known triad member and who appears... In the next film, we're going to talk about God of Gamblers, because he's the bodyguard that protects Chow Yun-Fat in the movie. That is who I was talking about. So God of Gamblers, one of the biggest hits in Hong Kong in the 1980s. It came out in 1989. Yep, number one movie at the box office that year. Still an iconic movie. The image of Chow Yun-Fat behind the poker table, holding the deck of cards, is one of the iconic images in Hong Kong film. I had never seen this movie until yesterday, because... I just thought it was going to be bad. A few points against God of Gamblers. There is no reason in hell it should be an hour and 50 minutes. Uh, An hour and 50 minutes. The version I watched was 126 minutes. It was over two hours long. And what's funny about God of Gamblers is it's a retake for Wang Jing, who just the year before had made a film called Casino Raiders with Andy Lau that was more of a takeoff of the John Woo A Better Tomorrow films. Whereas God of Gamblers fits in no known category of movie. Every genre you could want is encompassed in this 126 minute runtime. I'm a big fan of a little picture called Rain Man. Will it deliver some of the Rain Man goodness (laughs) in this movie? Well, this is probably the real reason why I'd never seen it because I heard the premise of the film and I thought, Eh, not for me. Here's what happens in God of Gamblers. Chayon Fat is the God of Gamblers. That's what they call him. He looks like Connery Bond. He is so cool. He is so slick. But then one day, he's out for a stroll in the hills of Hong Kong, and he accidentally steps into a trap. A thief, a gambler, uh, a young criminal, played by Andy Lau, has set. Not for the God of Gamblers, but for someone else. Yeah, for more racist reasons. <laughs> he falls down a hill, he hits his head against a rock, and then for the next, I want to say, hour of the movie, maybe next 70 minutes of the movie, uh, he he becomes Simple Jack, if you will. Yes, where Chang Fat acts like a child, he loves candy, and he He's also great at gambling. Now, this kind of God of Gambler theme would become very popular in Hong Kong, specifically through the films that Wong Jing would make. They never really returned to the whole Simple Jack version of the story, thankfully. I mean, God of Gamblers has a lot of other stuff in it, and I'm basically glad I watched it because it has, again, it just has so much stuff. There are some very good action scenes in the movie. There's a lot of heavy melodrama, a lot of really heavy uh, slapstick comedy as well. (laughs) A man with in the first 15 minutes gets thrown out of a window and you see him fall from the like third floor onto a car in one shot without any takes. There's that great action scene with the scaffolding in the second half of the movie where they're, they're jumping between buildings. There's also like a, a kind of fun caper plot that sort of happens in the second half of the movie. I was, I was definitely into the movie in its last half hour. You can understand watching the film why certain elements became very iconic and why Wang Jing would return to them 
again and again. But what's really interesting about God of Gamblers, which is funny that it is one of the films in the 2000s that everyone was like, oh, this is one of the top Hong Kong films. I feel like people don't talk about it that way anymore because there's so much other stuff you can watch other than this. I mean, it's not even in my top five Wong Jing movies. I mean, No, not even close. But what's really interesting about God of Gamblers is the way that Wong Jing maximized it and reacted to the ripoffs that happened around him. So I'm going to go through this as fast as I can because I know I've said it before. So after God of Gamblers, another company and director Jeffrey Lau and Corey Yun made a parody of it called All for the Winner starring Stephen Chow. The gimmick in All for the Winner was that Stephen Chow was a psychic and also kind of like a mainland Chinese bumpkin who was very good at gambling. And in this universe, God of Gamblers was a movie that inspired him. All for the winner, huge hit, essentially made Stephen Chow's career. Wong Jing's reaction to this is to cast Stephen Chow in the sequel to God of Gamblers as the same character, now also with Andy Lau, who was in the first one. Chow Yun-Fat is nowhere to be seen. He appears only in an outtake at the end of the movie where the characters look off screen and go, hey, look, there's our master. Cut to an outtake of Chow Yun-Fat turning to camera from the first film. And they're like, hello. <laughs> yes, that does mean he's credited in the film, even though he technically does not appear. God of Gamblers 3 comes out. No more Andy Lau, just Stephen Chow. Now he's just a psychic gambler. He goes back in time to Shanghai, sings a song about McDonald's. <laughs> Very silly. Then... Of course, Chowing Fat comes back and God of Gambler returns. <laughs> Another movie. This is all happening within like a five-year period. While Wong Jing is also making like a dozen other films. Wong Jing is a reactive filmmaker. He's also a reactive filmmaker with no shame. If he thinks something will make money and that people will be amused by it, he will do those things. Okay, I hope everyone was taking notes there in that God of Gamblers chronology. And I also want to note that the God of Gamblers is still an active character. He was recently in a movie that Justin and I both saw called From Vegas to Macau 3, which uh, was a Wang Jing movie that played at our local multiplex. It was a massive hit in mainland China in like 2018, 2019, I want to say. And the God of Gamblers was back. Chai on Fat played him again. Yeah, you're forgetting a very important part of that movie, which is From Vegas to Macau is about a master gambler played by Chai on Fat. So he also plays the God of Gambler, who is a separate character. And a big plot element in the movie is that they switch roles. So there's a lot there for you folks to chew on. Someone out there, I hope, will be inspired by this episode to become a connoisseur of the tangled thicket that is the God of Gamblers franchise. Don't forget that All for the Winner had a sequel called Saint of Gambler in English that Wang Jing also directed, but Stephen Chow was not in. So you may be wondering, how did Wang Jing make all these movies? How can a man direct 140, 160-odd movies? The answer is... He didn't. Uh, some of them he only sort of directed. Delegation, if you will. I mean, he's very open uh, with the fact that when an action scene breaks out, he tells his action choreographer, go do it. Choreograph, you can direct, you can edit. I don't want anything to do with it. I also remember reading somewhere that... Wang Jing, after a film was shot, he wanted it edited, all the sound mix, done in two weeks, and then it's out the door playing the midnight screening. We could spend hours talking about every facet of Wang Jing's career. We've barely even talked about the many movies he made with Stephen Chow in the 90s that were 
you know, huge, like made him the Jim Carrey of Hong Kong. That's what they used to call him. And we didn't talk about like the weird reactive things that he did. Like, how does someone evolve post 97 when you're making very silly comedies in the 90s? Well, there's a little film called Infernal Affairs. That was a big hit. So Wong Jing started pumping out Infernal Affair clones by the bucket load. Or how about... Jet Li made three movies in the Once Upon a Time in China series, these blockbuster martial arts movies, uh, the movies that brought the kung fu genre back in Hong Kong, where he played the Chinese folk hero Wong Fei Hung. But then he had a disagreement with director Choi Hark. He said, I'm not playing Wong Fei Hung Fu anymore. I'm going to go across town and, and make a Wong Fei Hung movie with Wong Jing. And so they made Last Hero in China. Who did they get to do the action? Well, Yuo Ping, who choreographed the action in Once Upon a Time in China, too. So it's essentially a Once Upon a Time in China movie because the character is public domain and also the theme song has no copyright. So you imagine watching a Superman ripoff and you heard John Williams theme throughout the picture. Yeah, it's kind of like the never say never again of the series. But not as like old and lazy and not good. Let's skip all the way ahead to a more recent one that we watched. 2017's Chasing the Dragon, which Wang Jing co-directed. Wang Jing co-directed a lot of pictures. Like, he's not always the sole directorial credit. I wonder what actually triggers that. Like, did he just show up for one day and he's like, all right, yep, do that. But this film is, I don't know what trend it was chasing. Like, I was trying to figure out, like, when it came out in 2017, what was its inspiration? Because it's kind of like a sprawling biopic about two famous criminal figures in Hong Kong. Lee Rock, who was a corrupt police officer, and Crippled Ho, who was a famous drug dealer. And what's notable about this is that Andy Lau had played Lee Rock in the 90s in a trilogy of movies. And he's back playing the same character, about 25 years too old for him. Okay, so this is what I like about Chasing the Dragon. First of all, I don't know what it was ripping off specifically. What it feels like is a Hong Kong or, or a Chinese version of something like American Gangster. You know, that kind of like white elephant crime drama. But even American Gangster came out 10 years before Chasing the Dragon came out. It's kind of an evergreen genre, though. The big two and a half hour crime drama, the a sort of Scorsese Coppola type thing. I remember but, hearing at the time they really wanted the film to play at festivals in gala presentations. Like this was an important film. It wasn't just mere entertainment. This is what I love about Wong Jing. I mean, he's directed Naked Killer. He's directed The Spy Dad. Well, he didn't direct Naked Killer. He only produced Naked right, Killer. Right, right. Sorry. Uh, that's an embarrassing mistake. And he also produced Naked Killer 2. Cover your ears because it has a bad subtitle. Raped by an Angel. He produced produced a lot of these movies. He produced uh, a Chinese torture chamber story, but then he also directs this movie that is a sort of wannabe prestige production with two of the biggest stars in China. Not good either. Not good. No, it's it, it's it's boring. I was disappointed by it. It's just a generic kind of nothing like it will yeah. fade from memory as you watch it that's the problem with uh you know current day wong jing is that listen he's been in the industry for 40 years more than 40 years at this point like and the chinese film industry even the mainland chinese one it's not suited for the kind of movies that he makes very reactive quick 
off-the-cuff movies that he could just put out into the world. He's not, you know, a uh, very critical or satirical filmmaker when it comes to governing bodies or the culture at large, but I can understand why the censors, uh, you know, maybe they take a little bit of time with his movies to come out, which is the antithesis of the way that he works. Uh, Well, what I'll say is seeing From Vegas to Macau 3 gave me a little bit of hope. I mean, it's a bad movie, I guess. It's pretty... uh... There's just a fight scene where it's a bunch of Transformers fighting for no reason for like 50 Okay, but here's what I like about it. I mean, I saw From Vegas to Macau 3 and I was like, this is one of the only Chinese movies in recent years that's given me a little bit of that flavor, a little bit of what I used to like about this filmmaker. So I think on some level, he has retained his shamelessness. Well, I have some bad news for you, Will, because recently Wang Jing put out two films that he co-directed, remakes of the Jet Li film Kung Fu Cult Master, which if you haven't seen, I would highly recommend. It's a wild wuxia film. Uh, the original, uh, choreographed by Samuel Hung. The new ones, oh boy, boring. Just lifeless two-part movies, which is like, ugh. Especially when you know that there is a Bananas original version that exists. So wait, you're telling me that Wong Jing has made a bad movie. I'm sorry to break this news to you, Will, but it's the reality of it. I can't believe it. Anyway, getting back to the old question, are Wong Kar-wai and Wong Jing the yin and the yang of Chinese cinema, art and commerce pitted against each other? Yes, they are. But also, it's not quite that binary, because I do think Wang Jing is an artist of sorts, by which I mean he has authored a career like no other. He has authored exactly the career that he wants. He makes exactly the kinds of movies that he apparently wants. And there's a lot of his personality in all of his movies, even the ones that he didn't really direct. If you watch a lot of Wang Jing films, for all the joking we've made that he doesn't direct these films, the structure and even the themes, they keep coming back again and again. A Wang Jing touch is out of nowhere, 40 minutes into a film, a character will suddenly have an internal monologue to set up a joke. Like, that is a Wang Jing staple. And I'm glad that you can see those stylistic consistencies in all of his motion pictures. Many of them have bathroom humor. We forgot to mention that. So yes, a lot of bathroom humor. And you know what? I will have one more word on the Wong Kar Wai Wang Jing fight. Both of their films now look like shit. So you know, <laughs> they're both on the same level. <laughs> Uh, well, do we have any letters this week, Justin? As per usual, you can send us letters on pornstinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And our first letter is from Tristan Penfold, and its subject line is an embarrassing question. Hey, Justin and Will, longtime listener, first time writer. Just wanted to say I really enjoyed your brief tribute to Gilbert Gottfried in the last episode. Gilbert was one of my comedy heroes, and my own brief attempt at stand-up was heavily influenced by him. I didn't imitate the voice, but I did a lot of Gilbert-style impressions. Captain Kirk, Spock, and Dr. McCoy, the three stooges it was as bad as it sounds i'm a i am a little bit embarrassed to admit that i actually cried a little when i heard he had died and thinking about it later i realized that happened to me just once when joey ramone died which was over 20 years ago so i was wondering has the death of a celebrity ever had that kind of effect on you whether it's actually brought you to tears or just bothered you a lot more than you expected keep up the great work and justin congratulations on 100 episodes of no such thing as a bad movie a loyal listener tristan i would say that many well a certain number of celebrities deaths have affected me. Typically, it's ones who sort of died when they were too young. I'll say that like when Norm Macdonald died recently, I don't know if I was brought to tears by it, but I was certainly like very sad about it because it felt so unfair. It felt like it it felt sad knowing that we weren't going to get anything more from him and he was just in his 60s. I mean, to be really affected, I think it has to come from a wow, like Will said, they were so young, they were in the middle of what they were doing. And I don't know if there's anyone that I was 
was that attached to that it just came out of nowhere like that. Because when I hear that Jerry Lewis died, it's like, ah, yes, finally he's in hell where he belongs at rest. <laughs> he falls into the category of there are many people who I'm sort of sad when I hear they die because they're the last links to a vanished era. Like when Roger Corman dies, and I certainly hope I haven't put a curse on him now by saying this, because uh, he, he's 96 years old. But when he-, he lived a happy life, I feel, I mean, now that he's estranged from all his money grubbing kids. When he dies, I will be sad just because he is an icon and he's a link to a a whole other world of film that's gone now. Yeah, I think that's probably like, even if Martin Scorsese kicked the bucket tomorrow, I'd be really sad, but I wouldn't, I don't think I'd be in tears by it. I would think that it would have to be like someone is in the middle of the project doing something and it's their life's work and then they pass away and it's like, oh my God, I'm so invested in this person. But I feel that my relation to celebrities is too distant for me to feel that emotional. But I can understand Gilbert Gottfried kind of hitting you like a bunch of bricks especially if you listen to him every week you have that parasocial relationship with him and it come, came out of nowhere that he passed away well actually gilbert Gottfried did affect me because i liked his podcast so much his podcast was in that canon of like six or seven podcasts that i listen to really regularly don't worry will he's currently i guess podcasting from beyond the grave according to the updates that are happening and his twitter feed yeah uh, you know what i feel like as i get older and the people start passing away or people closer to our age we'll start to be affected by it even more or maybe we'll grow even bitter to it and not care who knows well thank you very much for that letter tristan and our next letter is from liam mcclurg and it goes hey guys love the show was listening to the nick broomfield episode heard will say about how he learned at j school that paying subjects is unethical i think j school he means journalism school that's right. i read j school in like japanese school will went to J- japanese school thought you might be interested to know that in britain this isn't frowned upon even at the big media organizations at all maybe it should be you can even go to a website to establish an estimate on how much you get for your story in docker print all the best guys liam scott i just want to say that britain's media is a cesspool and we all know that <laughs> uh, i asked this question to will once when i was asking somebody to be interviewed and i agree you shouldn't pay people to be interviewed because that skews the story 100 percent. i guess but i actually think it's a complicated question i mean let's say you're making a big budget documentary film oh uh, you're right yeah and you ask somebody to be interviewed for it and they're poor and and like their interview is sort of going to sell tickets to that big budget film it's a complicated question i I would say that the closest thing I have to an ethical solution is what Nick Broomfield does, which is to show himself, film himself giving people the money. I remember Michael Worth talking about, he's doing that Bruce Bloitation documentary where he's interviewing a bunch of the guys, and he said that the only one who refused his money was Dragon Lee, who like walked him to the elevator and said, no, no, you don't need to give me any money. I'm good. Just go on with your with your day. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I'm not a journalist. I'm glad I'm not. That sounds like a lot of stressful work. <laughs> Well, you'll be hitting the beat soon again, right? You become a journalism uh, journalist again. Any day now. I mean, you are with Michael and us. <laughs> That's your beat. I think uh, ICC is a, its own form of journalism, too. All right. Well, thank you very much for that letter. And you can email us again at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. What are we talking about on our Patreon this week? We'll we'll be revisiting a subject that we talked about on, I want to say, episode three of the show. The episode where we uh, bunched two directors together, Michael Bay and John Woo, because we only had 15 minutes of material on both. We were very early in in our run. We didn't really have the format of the show worked out at the time, but we both went to see the new Michael Bay movie, and we'll be talking about that and him more generally. And Will actually also watched The Rock, so he's got a little bit more Michael Bay under his belt. All right. 
right. So what are we doing next week, Will? We are going to conclude Comedy Month on the Important Cinema Club. We've been to Japan. We've been to Hong Kong. Now we are going to the greatest country of them all, Canada. We are doing the third in our beloved series of big screen comedian failures. We're not quite sure which Canadian figures that we're going to pick yet. But I know, I mean, we have to. People have been demanding it. One of the films will be something starring Harlan Williams. <laughs> Probably Rocket Man. It's either that or Sorority Boys. Oh, boy. Hey, he's very funny in that one scene in Dumb and Dumber. That's him, right? So, yes. Big Screen Comedian Failures Part 3. Canada. Now, Will, are you willing to maybe jump in front of the bullet of something like uh, Duct Tape Forever? Yes. Let's Corner do Gas it. the movie. Is that considered a big screen failure? That's a good question. I, I would say so. Yeah. Why not? Because it's very popular in Canada, though. The show is, but the movie? I mean, they even got an animated movie. Oh, boy. We're talking like a whole other language to people who don't live in Canada right now. But we will give you all the details next episode. Until then, my name is Justin DeGlue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Hello, Justin here to thank some of our new patron subscribers who include Matthew McGraw, Mirren Terzik, Vegard Lynn, Rhea, Joe Bols, Madge Potatoes, Stephen Keelback, Dario, Josia Sutton, Michael Davies, Ethan Cartwright, and Daniel McClellan. Thank you very much for becoming patrons. We could not do it without you. And if you're listening to this and you listen to every week, come on, become a patron subscriber. There's like more than 200 episodes waiting for you there. Tons of stories that me and Will have not shared on the regular podcast. So check it out. Patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club. And if you can't afford it, I understand. We live in a terrible economy and world. Then you should check out Apple Podcasts and give us a review. That will help us in immeasurable ways. And and if you've been listening this long, come on, get on there. I know it's a lot of work. You may actually have to create an account, but it'll take maybe two minutes and then you can write a little pithy review and I would and Will would also very much appreciate it. Will, did you hear? Netflix is changing their business model, which has been going so well up until now. The fact that they are hundreds of billions of dollars in debt and have no way to reclaim it. They finally found a solution, though. Listen to this. What if you interrupted the shows and or movies you were watching with advertisements? Here's the thing. It'll work. It's also something that already exists called television. Well, I'm sure it'll probably be a multi-tiered price strategy where if you pay yeah, that's more, how they're gonna yeah, do if it. you yeah. pay more, you won't get ads. If you pay less, you do get ads. Uh, I mean, look, I don't like it. I don't like the idea of chopping up a movie with ads. That said, I've watched many movies on Tubi with ads and it's it's fine. Do I respect Netflix? No. no. I mean, they are a, I mean, uh, what is it? The uh, movers and shakers or what is it? Disruptors. That's the uh, buzzword that everybody uses that Netflix was making everyone on the streaming model and then realizing, wait a minute, this is not sustainable in any way. You don't have enough revenue to continue this. So if people are listening to this 50 years in the future, and I'm sure they will be, uh, they'll be interested to know the context of this. You see, Netflix's stock plummeted 25% this week. It did? Holy shit. Yes, 25% because it was reported that they lost subscribers. Now, a lot of this, I believe, an underreported detail of this is the fact that they don't broadcast in Russia anymore because of the Ukrainian war. So that hemorrhaged a lot of subscribers. But then, you know, I suspect subscribership rates have been dropping anyway. Netflix, it's peculiar. Uh, for a number of years, I think we've all been wondering 
how is it that they can just dump all of this money in all of this stuff like this week it was reported that the new season of stranger things every episode costs 30 million dollars holy shit 30 million dollars i did not see that article every episode 30 million dollars per episode i mean i mean at that point that's just a money laundering operation every year netflix posts losses every year they do you know i think for many years we've been wondering how how can this be? <laughs> because uh, for people that don't know, the way that the stock market works is that people sell if they think a business is in trouble. When people sell, a business becomes in trouble just through perception. But Netflix does not release numbers. You do not get subscription numbers. You do not get how many people are watching something. So it's all up in the air whether something is popular or not. What you do know, first of all, what you do know is that everybody in the world has seen Red Notice. I just saw that on Instagram. They said that uh, uh, 500 billion people have watched it. Did you watch Red Notice? Uh, no, I didn't. So, well, you're one of the few. I mean, I've seen it, and I went, no more. This is bad. I can't do this anymore. So we know that. And what do we also know? We know that no TV show on Netflix makes it past season two. Well, that is something that has only happened recently. And if you look at Netflix's model, a lot of the stuff, especially animated shows, go on for two seasons, but they're not actually two seasons. They're just one season that Netflix breaks up in two, doesn't announce the second one, and that way they don't have to give a raise to anybody that works on the show. And basically every TV show, like once it gets to season three, the number of new subscribers they're going to get from it goes down. In one of the articles about Netflix that came out, there was a whole section about how Netflix keeps telling their animated division their shows need to be more like the Boss Baby, which is like the number one show. <laughs> on the network see this is why netflix has been a billion dollar company for so long it's because of keen insights like that i can only believe that the stock has plummeted because things have started seeming less like the boss baby lately